welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff on there. So if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can find us on Etsy at Terrible True Crime. And the last thing is that it really, really helps us when you rate the show and leave us a review or a comment wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So last week I told you guys that I had bought an old bar that I was going to refurbish. It went really well. It looks great. I'll put some pictures up on our social media. If you don't care, you can just click through the story, but <laughs> it, it's kind of fun. It looks really good and I'm happy with it. So yeah. Do you have a full on before and after? Yes, yes. I will post. Oh my God, yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Can you send them to me before you post it? I really, I'm really curious. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We kept like some of the like wood finish from what it used to look like, but then painted it to kind of match our dining room table, which I also is the first thing I refurbished, which took several attempts, but <laughs> so they, hopefully they kind of look like a match, like a set now. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, it's exciting. Um, my boyfriend got this really nice decanter for his birthday from me. So now we can like... <laughs> So now we can display it on top. Anyway, it's it's all really nice. So okay. I'm happy with it. And it didn't take too long. So that was nice. The other thing is, so it's been raining for the past like two days and it's supposed to continue to rain for the next several days here in the Calgary area. So there's like a lot of kind of stress around flood warnings and stuff like that for people who have properties and who are homeowners. And it, it it's just extremely depressing. Like it, it's so dark mm -hmm. and I'm at the point where I'm about to like shove my head under the arrow guarded light <laughs> to like try and get oh some God. like <laughs> vitamin D or something. Like it is dark and sad from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed. Like you people you people that live like up north where <laughs> But it's been tough and like it's just like more rain and more rain. Like if you go on the weather app like to the late like the latest day you can possibly <laughs> scroll. It's just rain. And not to mention trying to walk a dog when it is just oh, yes. pouring rain. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sick of it. But I don't think there have been any floods yet. So hopefully that kind of stays in the clear. Oh, man, I'm not used to it. Yeah, I was saying, I don't know if people like live up north who do like the 24-hour dark or whatever. That was wrong. But you know when it's dark yeah. basically all the time? I don't know how you survive that. Yeah, no, that's rough. That's actually really rough. Yeah. So hopefully I make it through. I'm sure we'll all be fine. Hopefully nobody's really affected negatively by it. But yeah, I'm pretty sick of it. So only like 10 more days to go. <laughs> we did get a nice day last weekend on Saturday. So I went to like a brewery where they had like an open mic Ooh. for singing and stuff. Did you sing? Was... <laughs> 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 it's just rude. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not a good singer, okay? If you That's guys fun. didn't catch that. No. Yeah. No, I did not sing. You have to like actually have skills and have like a guitar and stuff. Could you imagine? Okay. I was like, can you let me up? But it was interesting. There were some people that were better than others, but overall. So some people sucked and some people were really good. At least if the people were not like great, they knew how to play an instrument. So it was kind okay. of like, okay, like nice. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, A for effort, I would literally never get up in front of anyone to do yeah, anything, either. even like talking. So, so at least I got to take advantage of that. And then the last thing that I have is Ollie's getting upgraded on Friday. He's getting fixed. Oh, yeah, so good luck, f- Ollie. I know. He got fitted for his little onesie. Oh, yes, after. they do that now. <gasps> yeah, That's going to be so cute. Oh, my God. I need a yeah. picture as soon as yes. he's done. I will also put pictures of that up. But, yeah. Oh. So, I'm sure everything will go well. It'll be, like, a really quick operation. So yeah, it's so routine that, like, it's after. not really anything to worry about. But, yeah. oh, good boy. Yeah, we're just excited to, like, get it over with. Because that's like, his mm-hmm. last, like, puppy thing. And then it's, like, okay, yeah. you're a dog now. <laughs> <laughs> You're done with the dog. Visits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense, though. Oh, that's so exciting. Good for him. Okay. And I've been dying to ask you, first of all, how was the Bieber coffee, the Bieber cold brew? Um, Honestly, <laughs> um, not that great. Oh, no. What, like, what I it? just thought it could be more fun. You know, like it's literally mm. just an iced French vanilla. Oh, okay. Like, that's literally what it says on the menu, like iced French vanilla. So it's not like something like special that Tim Hortons didn't really have. You know what I mean? Oh, that's kind of annoying. Yeah. And when I got it, it wasn't even like cold. You know, it's almost like they made a pot of hot coffee and just poured it over ice and then all the ice melted and it was just kind of like lukewarm with like melted ice in it. You know, I tried it. That's all. That's all that matters. (laughs) How are you feeling about the Bieber news? Well, you know what? <laughs> I, I feel like everyone who complained about the show got feels canceled. Like shit now. Feels like shit. <laughs> yeah, I was like, damn. Oh my God. I watched his video and I was like, poor guy. That must be so scary. Like you wake up it's and half of your face is scary. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to pass, right? It's like this like weird virus. I think so, yeah. I think it's, well, from what I know, it's like the virus paralyzes muscles in your face temporarily while you have the virus and then it goes away afterwards. But imagine if that just never went away. And I'm sure while you have it, you think of the worst possibilities, right? Um, it's probably so strange. Yeah. And the Beavers have not had it easy. No, he hasn't. Like, yeah. And his wife, like, recently had mm-hmm. the, like, small TIA too which is scary yeah geez okay well for my updates I was feeling really lucky today so I went and I bought a cash for life ticket I really thought I was gonna win something like ten thousand dollars or cash for life something like I felt it in my bones I didn't I lost I lost four dollars on that um so so then Cody so extra disappointing when you're like convinced I was like something's telling me I need to buy that ticket right that scratch ticket right now so anyways I lost that I was really upset and then 10 minutes later my boyfriend was eating like this spicy pasta that had like a bunch of spicy peppers in it and I hate spice like I cannot do spice whatsoever I don't mind the taste of it it's just why would I eat something that hurts yeah (laughs) Yeah. literally I'm right with you with you I wish I would like it yeah me too so then he was like I'll pay you ten dollars if you if you eat a whole pepper and I'm like damn I just lost (laughs) cash for life I need this ten dollars I need it so then I (laughs) ate the pepper 
And my tummy was hurting for like 30 <laughs> minutes because it was so spicy in my stomach. I was like, oh, is this really worth the, worth the $10? Then I was like, then I can buy two more tickets for Cash for Life and maybe those will be winners. And like, this was all meant to be, you know? So Very I'll true. keep you updated next week if I went on <laughs> any other tickets that I buy. My other update, I think you'll like this one too, Renee. Past weekend, I went to Montreal just to hang out and we went to a club one night and of course, when you go out to bars or clubs, you meet the best girls in the bathroom and like the sweetest, the nicest. Mm-hmm. So I met this one girl who I don't know what her title would be, but for her job, she basically analyzes body language and can tell you what Ooh. it means or things like that. Like, I don't know. I don't I, you know, I had a couple of drinks. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly. But <laughs> she she said she, like she's been on trial to testify what her professional um, opinion? An, opinion is on oh. someone's body language and and what it means for the case. I was like, oh my oh. God, this is so cool. Like my first <laughs> true crime interaction <laughs> in person. This is amazing. <laughs> so that was really fun. And she was like the sweetest girl. I was like, I need to go out more just to meet nice girls in the bathroom. <laughs> to hang out in bathrooms just to hang out exactly (laughs) it's like the best spot ever you know I thought that was pretty cool (laughs) that's exciting Uh, yeah so I basically can't help myself anymore so I'm gonna try and throw some like current crime updates in with our own updates and there was so much stuff in the news in the past few weeks that I just I have three current things that I want to talk about so we'll chat quickly and eventually current stuff scares me even more Eventually, when we, like, actually launch our Patreon and all this stuff, like, our, our, like, goal is to do, like, a whole episode for things like this, like, maybe once a month or something. But for now, we'll do, like, really shallow dives into, if there is, we won't, like, make things up. But if there is, <laughs> if there is crime stuff going on in the news, then we will try our best to talk about it. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was a woman named Chelsea Portman. So she was a member, oh, this is going to be tough. You guys have to forgive me for mispronouncing probably all of these... <sighs> First Nation terms and words and names. So she was a member of the Kawakatusi First Nation in Saskatchewan, and she had in 2020 moved to Vancouver. She one night is hanging out with her sister in September of 2020 at some kind of like party or night out or at a, an apartment or something like that. Anyway, she basically leaves the hangout spot and she's never seen again. Almost two years later, so just recently in May, her remains were found, or I think it was late April, anyway, late April, May, her remains were found on the property of a home in the upscale Shaganesi neighborhood in Vancouver, which I guess it's like a really nice, big, like almost mansion-like house, but it's basically kind of abandoned. I guess it was bought by like people that live overseas or that live somewhere else. So no one's actively there, so it's believed to kind of have been frequented by squatters, maybe? So Chelsea had had a brain injury and had some physical challenges due to a car accident, and her family believes that this made her extra vulnerable to any predators or anyone who was out there looking to commit a crime. The Vancouver police are now saying that they believe that she died the day that she disappeared or shortly after because her remains had been basically pretty much exposed to the elements for 20 months. So she was just laying there like in in an expensive like richy rich neighborhood. That's so on this strange. Property. Very strange. Investigators have also said that they basically have insufficient evidence to call her death suspicious, but her family 
is obviously desperate for answers and is really pushing back on this. How is this not suspicious? <laughs> Thank you. I don't know how to say, like, how is this not the most suspicious thing ever? I guess, I mean, remains were just recently found, but they weren't able to, like, necessarily determine if it was, like, foul play or whatever. But at the same time, like, she wasn't found with her wallet, no phone, no nothing. To me, it seems like someone lured her, abducted her, whatever, and then something went wrong and they killed her and she, she laid sorry for you know but she laid and died where she was attacked and nobody found her for 20 months so this is really big in the vancouver area right now her family is really pushing back trying to get some answers and they're feeling like you know because she is an indigenous woman that they're getting less of an investigation than than chelsea deserved so we're, we're we're there we're there on their side and i just wanted to mention it because it's people are trying to keep this story alive and this case alive so it doesn't just kind of like fade mm-hmm. out no, like sure. many of the other ones so um if you're interested in learning more the podcast podcast by proxy which is a fellow canadian true crime podcast they just came out with an episode this week they're episode 81 and it's all about chelsea and all the information that we have so far is there like a petition or anything that we can do to help or like it's really just keeping her name out there for now I think it's really just keeping her name out there. And I think, I mean, I think the Vancouver police are getting a lot of pressure Mm -hmm. in this case. So hopefully, I mean, they can't make up answers, right? But hopefully everything is done that could possibly be done to help solve her case or bring the family some type of, not closure, but like kind of an end to the whole situation. So that being said, if anyone sees any updates or anything and they want to send them our way on social media, that'd be great. But we'll try and keep updated with this case. Second current true crime news is I mentioned Frank Young, and I think in episode 23, he was a five-year-old boy who went missing from the Red Earth Cree Nation. He went missing on April 19th, and he was wearing a dinosaur pajama, navy blue windbreaker, and Paw Patrol boots. Mm. There's still no news about Frank, and the worst part is like when I Google his name or try to look things up, there's not even any current articles. Like there's there's not even an article saying like he's still missing. Like it seems like his name has kind of fallen out out of the media and nothing about him being found either so i'm praying that he's been found and that's why i can't find anything but i would have thought that if he had then there would have been some kind of information about it mm-hmm. I don't know. so we're, we're still thinking about frank young and we hope that he comes home soon okay this last case in toronto a little girl's body was found in a dumpster last month and she was likely never reported missing If you listen to our last week's case, this just gives me like full Melanie flashbacks. Like, so this just really stood out to me. She's a a young little black girl. The head of the city's homicide squad is really hoping that they're gonna be able to identify her remains. She was a black girl, as I said, between four and seven years old. She was found in a construction bin outside of Dale Avenue, a home in Toronto's wealthy Rosadale neighborhood on May 2nd. Police have gone through numerous tips that came in after they announced the discovery and released two images of her. We have already posted those on our social media, but we will post them again. And we hope that sweet little girl is identified and someone obviously somebody knows something this one is uh, i'm gonna follow this one closely because it's strange she's so little oh my yeah. god yeah she's just this beautiful little girl and like like no one reports her missing and no one i yeah i'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around how this set of circumstances even happened but yeah we'll keep all the we'll keep chelsea we'll keep frank and we'll keep our little 
Jane Doe in our hearts right now and in our heads. And if, you know, even if you have a small amount of followings on your own social media, if you want to repost stuff, it always helps. That's what they're looking for people to do when law enforcement or own family members are putting the information out on social media. So we'll try to continue to do that and feel free to also spread the word. This week, we are continuing our covering of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. We did mention a couple episodes ago that it's Pride Month, but it's also National Indigenous History Month, so we also wanted to celebrate this. In this episode, we'll be covering three different cases out of British Columbia. We mentioned in the last episode in our series, but I think it's important to say again that we are not experts on the subject. I do some research with, and I do what I can with the information that I find, which often is minimal in these cases. We will probably make some mistakes, so we welcome any feedback or criticism, and we hope to grow and learn as allies. We just want to use this platform to tell stories of those we feel are not getting the attention they should be. That being said, I hope that everyone is aware, but in case you are not, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is a big problem in Canada. Here's a little refresh. The following information is from the Natives Women's Association Canada, the fact sheet that is the violence against Aboriginal women. According to Statistics Canada, in 2004, Aboriginal women experienced much higher rates of violence than non-Aboriginal women. Statistics Canada also reported the following findings. Aboriginal women 15 years and older are 3.5 times more likely to experience violence than non-Aboriginal women. Rates of spousal assault against Aboriginal women are more than three times higher than those of against non-Aboriginal women. Nearly one quarter of Aboriginal women experience some form of spousal violence in the five years that this study was done. Statistics Canada also reported that Aboriginal women are more likely to experience more severe and potentially life-threatening forms of family violence than non-Aboriginal women. The sources for this week's case are the fact sheet from the Native Women's Association of Canada, several CBC News articles, one by Angela Starrett. There's also an article from The Stories of the Unsolved, an article from Energy City by Spencer Hall, and two more CBC articles by Martha Troyne and Darren Bernhardt. For our first case, we are covering the disappearance of Caitlin Pott. Caitlin grew up in Alberta. She was in the foster care system until she was about 11 years old. Her mother, Priscilla, told CBC the following. When she was a child, on our visits, we'd do everything as a family go to the lake, have dinners. She was always happy. My daughter is incredibly smart. She was always on the honor roll in high school. In February of 2016, Caitlin was 27 years old and she was a mother. I couldn't find much information on how many kids she had or how old they were, but it is reported that she was a mom. She was from the Samson Cree First Nation. Caitlin was living in Edmonton with her younger sister, Cody, before she decided to move to BC. She moved to Enderby, BC to join her boyfriend. It's reported that the two had a bit of a turbulent relationship. They were kind of on and off, you know, throughout the entirety of the relationship. And according to Cody, Caitlin's sister, Caitlin's boyfriend was physically abusive towards her. She said, One time she called me crying and she was hiding in the bathroom, saying he was outside and he was going to kick the door in. He was arrested that night, and she stayed in a Salmon Arm women's shelter. She was fine there, going to school, and had a job at Tim Hortons. 
until she went back to him a couple months later. The last time Cody spoke to Caitlin, Caitlin was in Kelowna, BC on February 22nd, 2016. She was last seen in person in Enderby, BC. One week later, she was reported missing to the Vernon Okanagan RCMP. Cody describes Caitlin as follows. She was so outgoing and bubbly and made everyone around her feel comfortable and happy. There was no one that can replace her. If someone made her disappear, I can't understand how that could happen. So there are several theories as to what happened to Caitlin. So the first one is that Cody told CBC that Caitlin and her boyfriend had recently reconnected the day she went missing. She was apparently upset with him because he owed her some money. So we know domestic violence situations, we know how they can escalate. We, I don't think we have any proof that they saw each other that day or that they reconnected in person, but I think we have to, to kind of speculate that this could have been what kind of led to her disappearance. The theory number two is that Caitlin told her friends and family that she was in Kelowna, as I mentioned, in February. The second theory is that Caitlin told her friends and family that she was in Kelowna. The next morning, she messaged her roommate in Salmon Arms saying that she had met a stranger the night before. So... We don't really have a lot of information on who this stranger was or the circumstances of them meeting, but obviously it was kind of important enough that Caitlin felt that she should mention it to her roommate. It's mm -hmm. kind of very strange. I don't know if this is a positive interaction, a negative one, but I guess she had somehow connected with this stranger the night before. The third theory is that the last day that she spoke to her sister Cody, she told her that she had found a ride to Calgary through Kijiji. This is what Cody had to say. She left me a message the morning she went missing, saying she had found a ride on Kijiji to Calgary. In the message that Caitlin sent Cody on the morning of February 2nd, she told her, Coming back tonight for sure. I think basically what, what I'm getting from this, this case and the information that I have is either something happened with Caitlin's ex, something happened with a stranger that she had met the night before, or this super sketchy Kijiji ride thing and like desperate calls, I get it, but this is for sure a red flag. I think I would much rather try hitchhiking than to go on Kijiji and find a ride that way because I feel like if you're on Kijiji like trying to find someone to ride with you it's like more sketchy no they can almost like plan to yeah. do something to you with yeah. like whereas I guess on picks you have hitchhiking then you're just like hoping for the best yeah 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 but people do the ride share thing right on like Kijiji? people do I don't know about Kijiji. I know there are apps for ride shares and yeah. stuff like where people like actually like meet up and they're like, hey, I'm mm -hmm. going here. And like, I know I've listened to like older true crime cases where it's just like it used to be like on a college bulletin board, like, like I'm at the University of Ottawa, but I'm heading back to Kingston where I'm from. Does anyone need a ride? Like, is anyone also going that way? Which I, I, I know, I know. But yeah, Kijiji but, is sketch. Yeah, it's just like, I love that concept. If everyone was a nice person. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's a great concept. We help each other out. Where do you need to go? I'm going there too. Let's go together, you know, meet strangers, get to know each other, become friends, whatever. But the world is full of bad people. Yeah. A missing persons report was filed with the RCMP on March 1st, but the official missing alert did not go up on their website until March 21st. This is a big delay from the time that she was reported missing until the time where they put it up on their website. In early June of 2016, Caitlin's mother, Priscilla, contacted the Indigenous groups in BC and tried to, you know, get everyone together to help them conduct their own search. They were losing faith in the RCMP's investigation. In May of 2017, the RCMP say that they suspect foul play in her disappearance. 
and they actually released a surveillance video of Caitlin entering Orchard Place Mall in Kelowna on February 21st of 2016. This is the last time she was caught on camera. You can find this video online. It's very grainy, <laughs> but this is what she was wearing. Three quarter length black jacket with a hood, light colored pants, black winter boots, a hair tie, a scrunchie to be more specific, a large light brown leather style handbag, and she carries a white cell phone. Cody and Priscilla have traveled from Alberta to join a 50 strong search party. They have looked all over the community. They've even gone door to door searching along the river and the nearby road where she was last seen. The community is located along Highway 97, one of the arteries the RCMP names as being part of the Highway of Tears. Kaylin Pott is approximately 5 feet 3 inches tall. She weighed 150 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She has brown eyes, long black hair with blonde streaks. Anyone with any information is asked to contact the Vernon RCMP at 250-545-7171 or anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. For our second case, we are covering the disappearance of Immaculate Basil. She went by Mackie. Mackie Basil grew up in Vanderhoof, BC. She has many siblings. It's reported that she was especially close to her sisters, Ida and Crystal. The three girls grew up in foster care, and this experience really bonded them. Mackie was a part of the Tlatsin Nation based out of Tachi, south of the Cruz She Reserve. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Basil lived in Fort St. James at the time of her disappearance in 2013. She worked part-time as a secretary and as a teacher's assistant at a school. She was a mom to a little boy named Jameson, and she had recently split from her longtime partner, who was also Jameson's dad. Mackie is described as an introvert who is not really into drinking or doing drugs. Her sister Ida described her as a beautiful, caring person. On the night of June 13, 2013, she went to a house party on the Tachi Reserve. Later that night, it's reported that she left with a man named Victor and her cousin, who was a man named Keith. They left around midnight or just after midnight. It's not believed that Mackie was planning to stay anywhere overnight. She had not packed an overnight bag. She didn't have a cell phone. She was reported to have been wearing gray yoga capri pants, white shoes, and a black hoodie with a maple leaf on the front. She also had carrying with her a blue iPod shuffle with white earphones on her when she went missing. None of these items were ever recovered. The timeline is, is kind of sketchy, and honestly, I got most of the information from Mackie's case from Wikipedia. Now, I do use Wikipedia quite a lot, but I usually always try to make sure that it's mentioned in one other source. I don't just use like Wikipedia as... <laughs> is just like the truth because we all know that we all know how wikipedia is but for this case most of this is just coming straight off wikipedia and that's just because there's so little information out there about most of these cases as i've mentioned before so as i said the timeline is a little sketchy and the people at the party it's kind of unknown who was really there or to the public at least who was really there and how many people were there the party was apparently at a house about a 20 minute walk away from Mackie's house. After Mackie left the house party with Victor and Keith, she was never seen again. She was reported missing by her sister on June 17th. Once everyone noticed she was missing, a four day search began. It was conducted by the RCMP, search and rescue, as well as volunteers. According to news reports, community members scoured Tachi and the river and they searched the old logging cabins within 20 kilometer radius of where Mackie's believed to have gone missing. So let's talk theories. Can we just say that so many of these cases happen after a party when they're going home? 
That's so scary. Women are more vulnerable, and then indigenous women are so much more vulnerable, mm-hmm. obviously. And you're most vulnerable probably after you've had a few drinks at a party. In you the know, dark. Yeah, at like nighttime, yeah. None of these situations, at least that we've even mentioned so far, is any reason to to kind of believe that not that I would ever say they put themselves in these situations, but they're not even dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're they're doing nothing wrong. Like they're mm-hmm. like not you know, you guys get what I'm saying. I'm never blaming the victim. I'm just saying that these women should be able to leave a party and feel safe. A hundred percent, yeah. All right, theories. First one, stranger abduction. So you're thinking like this is weird because she's supposed to have left with Victor and Keith. But there's a theory out there that she might have attempted to hitchhike alone after the truck that the three left in got into a car accident. Because apparently this truck gets into a car accident and then Victor and Keith get separated from Mackie. So what happened to her after that is unclear. Do you think they could have gotten into a car accident and she died and they didn't want to be responsible? So is that theory another number theory? two? <laughs> oh my God. Look at me go, guys. I'm learning so much from this podcast. Foul play. So, I mean, you're telling me she lives with these two men and she's never seen again. Like, I'm not pointing fingers because we don't sue us, but you know what I mean. Like, this is this is sketchy. Basically, the three of them get into this car accident, which I, I think is, is pretty much proven. But... Neither men really ever talked to the family about what happened that night. And apparently there was some history with one or both men about criminal charges that had happened in the past that would lead probably investigators or family to believe that they're, they might be more likely to have done something to Mackie. And then there's this other thing where around 10 a.m., the next day, on Friday, June 14th, Victor was seen walking down the street in Tachi wearing clothes that were soaked wet up to his chest which is just weird it's all just sketch and like if you are leaving a party with someone that you know or you're at a night out with friends or whatever like look out for each other like it's important to like do the buddy system thing yeah it's just hard to believe that they would have left and then like maybe we're just we're not we don't have that information but i don't know i don't know it's all sketch it's Mm -hmm. all sketch the third theory that's out there is some kind of animal attack but even like there are wild animals in the area where she went missing but even then she would have had to get actually separated from keith and victor and then an animal would have to have attacked her and then like no remains or anything were ever found so that like it's it's, it's hard you know, when there's no remains found because yeah usually it's if there'd be an animal attack there'd be mm-hmm. like something i would think like even pieces of clothing right like it's weird. yeah this next part is straight from Wikipedia. So both Victor and Keith were apparently given polygraph tests. The RCMP reported to the family that both men were cooperative. They were also interviewed by a forensic psychologist. The psychologist reported to the family and stated that they had found nothing was suspicious. The RCMP took part in the search effort about a week after on the 18th of June. They used dogs, but there was a hailstorm and kind of, you know, bad weather. So this makes it hard for the dogs to pick up a scent. There had apparently been some sightings of Mackie around the area, but unfortunately these sightings were quickly debunked. Ida told CBC that at first there was kind of a, a big reaction, you know, people were involved when Mackie first went missing. But she now feels like, other than rumors, she doesn't hear much, especially not from the police. The Fort St. James RCMP claims that they are still very active and ongoing in the case. Ida said that investigators also recently visited the family and told them to continue putting up posters of Mackie. 
Later, there would be a $20,000 reward for anyone who came forward with information related to Mackie. Unfortunately, the Basil family would go through another tragedy in 2016, when Mackie's brother, Travis Basil, who was 26 years old, was shot and killed. No arrests have been made in that case either. Mackie disappeared on June 13th. At the time of her disappearance, she was 27 years old. She was 5'5 and weighed 125 pounds. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Immaculate Basil, please you're asked to contact the Fort St. James RCMP at 250-996-8269 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Yeah, just another one of those like basically falls off the face of the earth, disappears, cases, and just no answers for the family. Especially when it's been so many years, it's it's just really crazy to think that no more information came up over all these years. No. And I think the thing that sticks out like with all these cases, like someone knows something about something. Like like right. someone has a nugget or a piece of information. I don't know, people just don't disappear. It's tough. I've said this before, but what resonates the most in this series that we're doing is how strong families are and how they are really the ones who are leading the entire investigation. And like what happened to her brother too? What are tragedy the odds? after tragedy. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Our third case this week is the missing persons case of Abigail Andrews. Abigail was born in Fort Nelson, BC. Her family moved to Tetsa River when she was in her early teens. Abigail and her sisters then moved to Fort Nelson together. I'm assuming this was later teens or kind of early adulthood, but they go back to kind of where they came from. While they were there, they both worked, but eventually Abigail decided she wanted to travel. So she spent a few years in England before she moved to Montreal. Sounds amazing. <laughs> the following is from her friend, Carrie Connolly. Abigail and I met, I think it was in 2006. We had both just moved to Montreal. We met at a call center there and we just hit it off right away. She was just this sweet, innocent, kind, heart on her sleeve type of person. She would have just given you anything. She was the sweetest, most giving, generous human being. We became best friends very quickly. In June of 2009, Abigail moved to Fort St. John and she worked as a cook in an oil field camp. She was apparently very good at this and she had great culinary skills. Before she went missing in 2010, she was 28 years old and was working at FSG Fashions and at the Frontier Bar and Grill. Around this time, Abigail found out that she was pregnant and it's reported that she was really excited about this news. Her aunt Beth, who was interviewed in one of the articles I mentioned earlier, said that the baby's father wasn't really kind of wanting to be part of Abigail and the baby's lives. But that she was hoping that with time, you know, he would get used to the idea and he would kind of jump on board. If you father a child, take care of it. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that. During this time, they weren't living together or even thinking about, you know, a long-term relationship. But she was, like I said, just, just hoping that he would be there to father the child that he helped make. Her aunt said that before she went missing, Abigail told others that she felt like someone was watching her. I know. That's if anyone ever an... tells me that, oh, like that's such run. an icky feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Go for a vacation somewhere far away. Like <sighs> it's creepy. It's creepy. Like I feel like that sometimes when I know no one's watching me. Like I can't imagine actually actually feeling like someone's watching me. This is what Beth, her aunt, said during an interview. She was a little fearful of situations that were going on. I went to her house maybe a week before her disappearance, and she was cautious about making sure 
who was at the door and then looking out on the street. She was just a little freaked out about some stuff and she didn't expand on it. On April 7th of 2010, Abigail told her mom that she was going to see her baby daddy and that he didn't live too far from her. She was last seen leaving her basement apartment on 99th Avenue in Fort St. John, BC. While leaving, she told her neighbor that she was going to see a male friend who lived on 98th Avenue. We can assume that this is the father of her child. Around 7 p.m., she called her mom, Debbie, to tell her the same thing. Before hanging up, her mom asked her to give her a call when she arrived back at home, which Abigail agreed to do. According to reports, she was last seen walking down 94th Avenue towards 98th. Abigail never again got in contact with her mom. After two days without any calls or texts, which was out of character for Abigail, her parents filed a missing persons report on April 9th. We, as of now, don't have any answers about what happened to Abigail. Abigail's friends and family continue to fight to want closure and justice for her and her unborn baby. They want to know what happened that night. People close to Abigail have said they think they know who did this and who is responsible for her disappearance. Okay, let's speculate. Theories. So, Really, I think there are, are kind of a two main theories. So the first one is, is foul play. So whether it was a stranger abduction or the man that she was going to meet that night did something to her and made it so that she is you know no longer with us or has disappeared. However, the issue with this is that there's basically no evidence. We, we've never found anything to point to the fact that anyone's abducted her. There's no body. We, we can't really confirm what happened to Abigail. The second theory is that Abigail left on her own, which we always hate this theory on missing persons cases because it, I mean, what are the chances that this happens? Like 1%? I don't know. <laughs> but basically, there's no way the family says that she was excited about the future. She was excited about the baby that was on the way. And she only had her phone, you know, a wallet and the clothes on her back. To add to that, there's been no activity on her bank card. So how do you fund an escape without using any of your money? So I think everyone's on the same page that foul play is more likely. Now, like I said, family has has an idea about who's done this. So and we can't go pointing fingers and we don't really know. There is not enough evidence to name anyone as a suspect which i'm sure is extremely frustrating if they feel like they really know who does this person have any information that could right. point the finger somewhere else other than at themselves you know like again like someone knows something like mm -hmm. who was she meeting that night what was she doing after she went missing a search began to find abigail it was conducted by the fort st john rcmp they also interviewed family and they learned that abigail was three months pregnant at the time which was kind of more cause for alarm they worried for both the risk to her and her unborn child. According to her family, like I said, she was really excited to be a first-time mom and she had been preparing for it. On April 20th of 2010, it was announced that the search that they had conducted was completed. However, investigators didn't really share if they had found any information in the search that would lead to anything of value in finding Abigail. To help raise awareness, Abigail's friends and family have set up a Facebook group where they now share updates and post pleas for information. On May 5th, 2010, a vigil was held for Abigail at the Frontier Bar and Grill where she worked. Participants met at the Centennial Park in Fort St. John before walking down 100th Street carrying candles meant to symbolize them lighting her way home. In June of 2010, a group of Abigail's friends and families organized another search for her. They hadn't previously been allowed to do so and I think the RCMP was worried that they would find something that could 
you know, if they find something and touch something or, or whatever, but it couldn't potentially interfere with the investigation. But I don't understand, like, how you don't, as a family member, just get out there and start searching, right? Like, even if someone told me yeah. not to, I think I'd be like, screw you, I'm going anyway. Well, especially if they're not finding anything, like, don't you yeah. want any information you can find, get whatever it is, if you have yeah. literally nothing. Yeah, exactly. Apparently, on the advice of a psychic, they searched around her apartment as well as the area around Fort St. John, which that's not a lot of information because that's literally around the area where she went missing. So I'm wondering if like we're miss if I'm missing information about the psychic pointing them in the more specific direction, but this didn't lead them to anything. They also put up two large billboards in BC. They were hoping that someone would drive on the highway and they could see you know, her picture, something related to the case, and that they would be prompted to call and either report it to the RCMP or to Crime Stompers. In 2013, the RCMP uploaded a reenactment video on their YouTube channel in hopes of stirring up memories and bringing new leads to the case. At the same time, they also shared that they did have one suspect who they couldn't name publicly. I, I guess there are rumors and they believe that this person has spoken about what they did to Abigail's and how, you know, he might have been involved in the disappearance and they're asking anyone to come forward with information. Even though it looks like they have a suspect, they are still missing information, obviously, or evidence to really tie this person to Abigail's disappearance. As of right now, there have been no more recent updates in the investigation. It's currently being investigated by RCMP's Provincial Serious Crimes Unit, and investigators are currently treating Abigail's disappearance as a possible homicide. She's believed to have been wearing black pants, a white shirt in a dark blue or black vest, as well as a mid-length belted trench coat and a pair of black sequin flats. <laughs> this outfit is so 2010. Like, I can just, like, visualize it from top to bottom. She's also said to have been carrying a purple guest bag with a pink Blackberry Pearl cell phone. Like, come on, bring yeah. me back. Like, this mm -hmm. is 2010. She was obviously fashionista, like... She knew what she was doing when it came to clothing. She is of Mitzi descent, and at the time of her disappearance, she was six foot and weighed approximately 200 pounds. She has a shoulder-length brown hair and hazel eyes. Like I mentioned before, when she went missing, she was approximately three months pregnant, and so she wasn't really showing yet. She did have breast implants, which have serial numbers, which is interesting. I feel like that's our first case that we've talked about that, really. So Yeah, like, I've never even thought about that. Yes, could you imagine being identified through <gasps> your breast implants? Amazing. Now I need to get it. Get it <laughs> I have to. <laughs> have to, sorry. <laughs> she also has tribal art on her lower back. According to her family, her teeth are also in good condition. She also has a right index finger, which appears crooked due to previously healed breaks. So this is a lot of information. This is good. It's all descriptions of Abigail and ways that we'd be able to identify her. Currently, the case is classified as I said, a missing person and being investigated as a homicide. If you have any information, you can contact the RCMP Division Serious Crime Unit at 778-290-3900. Tips can also be called into the Fort St. John RCMP at 250-787-8100 or 250-787-8140. Or anonymously, again, through Crime Stoppers at one 800 222 8477. Whew, 
So those are our cases for today. How are you feeling about all these missing women that we have no idea where they are or if they're okay? It's like, it's really overwhelming when you think about it because these cases are quite a long time ago, I would say, for that little information to be, Mm -hmm. I guess, released or, or that's all they have. And to just think that like every year it just keeps adding and adding and adding and adding and... Yeah, like we just talked Chelsea, right? Like we just talked yeah. Chelsea Foreman. That was... Yeah. We just got information this year in 2022. Yeah. And I mean, thankfully, I don't, you know, thankfully she was found because I think that it's, I, I mean, I don't think I would assume that it's better for families to at least have an answer. All three of these, mm-hmm. no answers, nothing at all. And some of them, they even have families and friends have suspicions as to who could have done it, but then they're not able to mm-hmm. act on it or do anything about it because of a lack of evidence or whatever. How extremely frustrating and so devastating. So I think that a question that a lot of us, I know me, ask ourselves often is, what can I do to help? You feel, you hear these things, you feel helpless. It's fact, we are both white women. We want to help. We want to be involved in some way. We want to contribute. And I know we donate um, at the end of the episode and we will get to that. But I did find a CBC article that asked a number of Indigenous leaders to weigh on how people can contribute. So here's the response of one of them. Their name is Sadie Phoenix Lavoie. They are a two-spirited Anishinaabe community advocate from the Saki Nation. And this is what they had to say. In the daily life, I think one of the major forms of combating racism is having conversations with people within the community and building those relationships with Indigenous people. I think really there's a hesitation to reach out sometimes because this uncertainty of like what's going to happen, but we have to have more healthy engagement with people within the broader community. There's a lot of community events that happen. And I think by showing up and taking the time out of your own personal daily lives to focus on community and going directly to the community and listening and hearing what their struggles are is mainly step one. There's many forms of getting out to the community and listening to people. Then you understand the extent of the issue and the ways that it's very multifaceted and how people are impacted. You can learn a lot from Indigenous peoples by understanding the life that we lived and the struggles that we have gone through in order to get where we are, and the resilience that we hold and the strength that we hold, and how we stand up for each other and we care for each other. We try to help each other out, but we're not getting that same response from a lot of Canadians. And I think that's what this call to action is saying. Like, hey, We need to see your hand in order for us to shake it. So really what they're saying when it comes down to is to be a part of the community and to involve yourself. They continued by saying, I think the relationship that we have as Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples is that there's a lot of missed opportunity for better relationships. I'm a firm believer that education brings about the sense of empathy. Take time in your own life to do the research and put in that work. If you're reading saying, hey, I don't really understand this whole issue. Look into it. Reading literature and books from Indigenous authors is a good start. Whenever people try to address or combat racism, there's still always this underlying layer of guilt and there's a layer of defensiveness. I think in order to get past that, you really have to establish a relationship with people and to start learning and listening more. A lot of people assume that when we try to alleviate our oppression, that it's an automatic attack on white people or an automatic attack on people that are privileged. But really, the basis of equity is around relationship building. It's around education. It's around engaging each other in a positive way and making sure that there's an equality 
of outcome rather than just an equality of opportunity. So bottom line, they're saying to read, listen, and learn. And then they continued by saying, start saying that you have the responsibility to help and that we all have a responsibility to help each other. There is an added responsibility on Canadians because of the genocide that Indigenous peoples have received, not only just historically, but presently. Our relationship has been served. And so in order for us to combat that, we really need to establish a relationship in a healthy and productive way. It can't be on the hands of Indigenous peoples to do all of that work. We Indigenous people shouldn't be the only ones demanding action. The responsibility is on your part as well. Again, this is basically bottom line, take responsibility. And finally, they said, we're dealing with the bystander syndrome. And, you know, we need people that are upstanders, people that are standing up and intervening. Allyship means you're an intervener of injustice. And so stepping in and putting yourself forward and stopping that from happening and saying, hey, that's not right. That's not what we need to be doing as a community and moving from passive supporters to active supporters. We need people that are actually out there physically helping and supporting. That's the only way for us to really change. That's the only way for us to have a system change is when everyone's involved. They're asking everyone to be upstanders. We've added this part in because I thought it was really important for someone like Sadie Phoenix Lavoie, who is an Indigenous two-spirited person, to tell us how we can be better allies because we're often asking the questions how and why. Well, they've just told us and hopefully we can all work and keep, you know, applying and growing and, and becoming better allies because that's always the goal. But to try and kind of really have an impact on on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls this week. We will be donating to the Native Women's Association of Canada. This is from their website. The Native Women's Association of Canada is a national Indigenous organization representing the political voice of Indigenous women, girls, and gender diverse people in Canada, inclusive of First Nations and on and off reserve status and non-status, disenfranchised, Métis, and Inuit. An aggregate of Indigenous women's organizations from across the country, NWAC, was founded on the collective goal to enhance, promote, and foster the social, economic, cultural, and political well-being of Indigenous women within their respective communities and Canadian societies. If you would like to contribute to Native Women's Association of Canada, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. And happy National Indigenous History Month.